Well, in the back of your program, we put a little bio here of Oz. And uh, I, I was just thinking last night, um, Oz and I went out and had dinner. And it was just him and I at dues. And, and it was just an incredible time. And I got in my car when it was over with. It was kind of late. I took him to his hotel, and I'm driving home. And I'm thinking to myself, I just was hanging out with Oz Guinness. Rick Countryman and Oz Guinness. That's just weird. I mean, that's just, I mean, it's just weird. And it, it was just a fantastic time, and I thought to myself, you know, Lord, who would have ever dreamed? And it's a, a real privilege. Some of us got to know Oz through the Truth Project, and we had hundreds of groups that went through it, and you got to see a little bit of him on, on that. And he doesn't go to many churches. He doesn't speak in many churches. He's not a, a preacher. He spends most of his time on campuses and debates and those kinds of forums and things like that. And so it's just a privilege to have him here. Now, now, now you need to get your thinking caps on. Okay, you need to put your thinking caps on. Because I know you're going to hear from the Lord. Would you, would you welcome up Oz Guinness right now to our platform? Thank you, man. Believe me, if Rick felt weird, and he's thoroughly at home here, probably I'm the weird one. <laughs> anyway, it's a tremendous pleasure to be with you. I've rarely had such a warm welcome. I'd heard about Love Modesto before I came here, but I didn't realize it grew out of this church. And having heard many of the other things you're doing, I think you should be called Big Heart Grace rather than Big Valley Grace. Anyway, it's been a real privilege for me, so thank you. Palm Sunday. Let me start a long way from there, back in the land that my father's come from, Ireland. There's a story of a Spanish professor visiting Ireland to try and contrast the two cultures. And he was out in the West Coast, which is a part of Ireland where time almost stands still. He found an old man who'd been propping up a pub most of the day, and he was asking him a number of questions, and he asked him, was there any word in Irish that was the equivalent to the Spanish word, manana? Old Irishman puffed on his pipe for a long time and finally said, no, in Irish we didn't have any word as urgent as manana. <laughs> now that is the old island, which is almost gone. Ireland today became the Celtic Tiger, and of course, as an advanced modern country, like the United States, has at its heart this 24-7 pressure that we call fast life. And if you think one of the most distinctive things about our world is this fast life, business at the speed of light, war at warp speed, road rage, hurry sickness. Someone was telling me in LA, you have a Californian word, honkosecond. The amount of time it takes when the light turns from red to green before someone will honk if you haven't moved, and so on. We all live in this incredible fast life of the modern world. Now, where did this come from? Obviously, it didn't come out of the Eastern background, where in Buddhism and Hinduism, life and time are a cycle that goes round and round and literally goes nowhere. 
The roots of our Western view come from the Scriptures. God has made history. Humans who act in history with purpose and God's providence over humanity and history itself. But obviously, we've come some way from our roots. And with science and technology and now nanotechnology, we're living in this world of instant immediacy all around us. There's been a tremendous movement in the church in the last 50 years for people to develop a Christian worldview. The Truth Project was a lot about that. To think Christianly, to develop a Christian mind shaped by our Lord and the Scriptures and not by the world around us. But one of the missing elements in many cases is a biblical view of time. And there's a tremendous sense of time throughout Scripture and a dynamism and an understanding of generations and days and moments. And there are positive examples and there are negative examples. In the Old Testament, you all know the wonderful example of the men of Issachar, followers of the tribe of Issachar, who are skilled in reading the signs of the times, not to be pundits, but to know what course Israel should follow. Or you have, and many women love this one, Queen Esther. And her uncle says, who knows, you haven't come to the kingdom, and you could finish the sentence, for such a time as this. There are negative examples in the Old Testament. Jeremiah the prophet taunts the Pharaoh of his day, King Bombas, King Hot Air, the man who missed his moment. In the New Testament, we do have positive examples. One of my favorites, the wonderful little throwaway line in the middle of Paul's sermon in Acts 13, where Paul is contrasting David with David's far greater son. And describing David, he simply says, David, after he'd served God's purpose in his own generation, fell asleep. What a wonderful challenge to us in our time today. But in the New Testament, it's sad that most of the examples are negative. And they surround the fact that Jesus and his own disciples and his generation didn't get it. And maybe the greatest of all the negative examples is Palm Sunday. And you remember the story. Jesus ahead of them going up to Jerusalem. Another chapter in Mark says he was so stern that as they were following, they were fearful. Clearly, there's much being prepared. You remember the incident of the donkey or the young colt, and they bring it to Jesus, and he rides it. And then the crowd bursts out, and they're citing Psalm 118, which is the great messianic psalm, and here, with all the build-up of the expectations of the ministry from Galilee to the poor, the sick, the demonized, here he's now entering Jerusalem, and they burst out with messianic welcome. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And of course, the Pharisees, shocked and disapproving, silence them. This is blasphemous. If I did, the Lord says, even the very stones would cry out. And so it mounts up. And as you know, there are, I gather many of you have been in Jerusalem recently, in Israel recently as a church. You know that there are many roads to Jerusalem. 
But all the others go upwards from different angles. The way that Jesus comes in over the Mount of Olives is the one that goes downwards. But there's a moment when you crest the hill and then you see the holy city and, of course, the golden roof temple down below. And when that happens, Jesus looks out over the city and out over the temple and hear the crowds crying around him and the Pharisees muttering their disapproval. And what does our Lord do? He bursts into tears. Now, Matthew has parts of the story that Luke doesn't have. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how many times I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't. Mark has some details that Luke doesn't have. But only in the Gospel of Luke do we have this great lament of Jesus over Jerusalem. And that's what I want you to look at this morning in Luke chapter 19, and particularly the verses 41 to 44. Let me read it to you in one of the recent versions. When Jesus came near and saw the city, he wept over it. If only you'd known, he said, on this day, what peace meant. But now it's hidden and you can't see it. Yes, the days are coming upon you when your enemies will build up earthworks all around you and encircle you and squeeze you in from every direction. They will bring you crashing to the ground, you and your children, and they won't leave one single stone upon another because you didn't know the moment when God was visiting you. Or as one version says, all because you missed God's moment when it came. Now let me point out to you three things in this great passage. First, the dramatic immediacy of the moment to Jesus, but in fact, to no one else. Now think for a minute of our own world. We live in a world, as I said, of instant immediacy. That's modern communication. And many people have pointed out the brilliance of this has removed various gaps that used to be common in human experience. For example, the gap between here and there. A quick email, gone. Or very obviously, too, the gap between now and then. It doesn't take any time to run or a horse to travel or a train to chug. No, instant communication. Now, then, here, there, all the gaps have gone. But there are subtler gaps. With our modern communications and technology, the gap between wish and fulfillment. The early ads for the credit cards, of course, invented in California, it takes the waiting out of wanting. You didn't have to have anything in your bank balance so long as you had the plastic in your pocket. And of course, the fourth little gap, the gap between one thing and the next thing. If you think at the time of, say, of Washington or Jefferson, things would take six weeks to two months to arrive from Europe, and they didn't have to hurry to answer the letters or whatever. It would take six weeks or two months to get back to Paris or London or whatever. But now, take the age of the internet, the gap between one thing and the next, zero. 
And if you're a leader in business or in politics or some area, there's an avalanche of information, an avalanche of appeals and needs crowding in on us all the time. My wife had dinner with one of the people running one of the presidential campaigns. And between grace and dessert, 800, I think it was, 800 emails had come in on his iPhone. Now, these gaps have been removed. So we live in this world of instant immediacy. But what's extraordinary here, Jesus has this intense sense of the immediacy, and there's no media at all. The word immediate actually means in Latin, there's nothing in between. There's no media, nothing in between, immediate. Of course, in our world of immediacy, there's a lot of things in between, namely the media. In fact, many people live in this world of real virtuality or virtual reality, and they live and move and have their being with iPads and iPods and all sorts of things all the time. They live in this world. But here, our Lord has this incredible immediacy in terms of time without any technology whatever. What am I saying? If you read the story carefully, our Lord is aware of three time realities. Not just one, but three. The first one, he says in verse 42, on this day. He's, of course, aware of the day he's living in. It's Palm Sunday. It's the day after the Sabbath in an early spring time in Jerusalem. And of course, that particular day was shared by everybody there. Jesus, the disciples, the crowds, the Pharisees, people who weren't there that day, like the Sadducees who were back in Jerusalem plotting. Or people we don't hear about till the next week, like, say, Simon of Cyrene, or whatever. All these people together were sharing that particular day. But that isn't all that Jesus is aware of. He's also aware of a coming day. The day will come, he says in verse 43. And Jesus sees not only this day, which is some date in the early 30s, he sees A.D. 70. All of you know the Jews, know that there are three catastrophic years in Jewish history. Three black years. The first was 586 B.C., when the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem and took the Jews into exile. The third, in the lifetime of many of us, 1942, 43, 44, and early 45, when you had Hitler's final solution and Auschwitz and the death camp and the destruction of six million of their people. But the second great disastrous year, A.D. 70. And if you remember your history, the Jewish zealots had revolted in 66 A.D. And they'd actually captured Jerusalem and hold themselves up in the fortress of Antonia, the Roman citadel, and Titus, the emperor, to show these provincials, had sent four of his crack legions 70,000 troops. Three of them had come from the western side, and one of them had come from the east, 
and actually set up its catapults and its siege machines on the very spot that Jesus was standing so they could throw down the stones and the fires and so on on the city below. And there was a terrible siege of Jerusalem. And with a calculating cruelty, the Romans had opened the gates and allowed everyone who wanted to go into the Holy Passover and so on to come in and then shut the gates. So that Jerusalem was swollen with the population. And so the food would run out faster. And when the slaughter came, it would be worst. And 1,100,000 Jews were slaughtered cruelly or died of starvation. And if you've ever been to Rome, you can see the Roman depictions of what they thought as the Second Jewish War and their great victory in the Second Jewish War depicted on the Arch of Titus in Jerusalem. Jews said, if you knew Jerusalem, you could only lament for the fate of the Jews. And the few who escaped to their army went to Masada, where they made their final stand before committing suicide in AD 73. A terrible, terrible moment. And here our Lord on this day, with the crowds celebrating all around him, he sees AD 70. And not a single stone of these great temples he's looking down on would be left standing on one another. But that isn't the end of it. The day he was in, the day that was coming, but our Lord also seems to see another day. If only you had known on this day the road that leads to peace, as one version puts it. There might have been another way, but they'd missed it. Now, we can't press too far in asking what that is, because on the one hand, we know there could have been no other way. After all, he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He himself had said he was the son of man who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He'd said that only in Jerusalem was the place where the prophets were killed, and he'd set his face to go to Jerusalem. And yet, and yet, he seemed to suggest that it was something he would have done, but they didn't respond because they'd missed it. Quite what it is, we don't know. But part of that is surely he sees this day. He sees the coming day of catastrophe. And he thinks what might have been if they trusted and responded, but they didn't. And so he weeps because they missed God's moment when it came. The dramatic immediacy of our Lord. Nobody else saw anything. But Jesus saw all these realities and it moves him to tears. That's the second thing you can see in the passage. The deep intensity of our Lord. He was moved to tears. Now this is actually the same word used in John 11 and the famous shortest verse in the Bible, which a thousand Sunday school questions have centered on. Many people think of John 11:35, Jesus wept. Actually, the passage in John 11 has far deeper things too. What's often missing in the English translations, very strong in the Greek, is that Jesus was angry. He was outraged. 
says he was indignant, deeply troubled in some of the English. He was outraged. He and his father had made the world good. But as he visited this world, all the brokenness and the ruin and the oppression is somehow summarized and symbolized in the death of his good friend Lazarus, struck down prematurely. And Jesus doesn't thank God for that. He is furious. He's angry. It wasn't meant to be this way. It should have been otherwise. Sin and death were a gatecrasher, alien, and he's angry. Certainly, he weeps. And actually, the word used of Jesus is not the word used a few verses later of the mourners at Lazarus' tomb. The word there could be translated into English, they wept and wailed. And if you put those two words together, they express desolation and forlornness. And that's not the word used of Jesus. Soon he's going to restore Lazarus, but he still weeps. He's dissolved in grief. He's crushed by sorrow, and that's the word used here. Now think, by contrast, of other religions and other leadership styles, and you see how different this is. I remember long before I came to the U.S. the first time, reading a story of a touch football game of the Kennedy family at Hyannisport. And one of the teenagers got knocked down and started to cry, and one of the older people picked him up and said, Kennedys don't cry. More stoic, macho, masculine style of leadership. You remember when Edmund Muskie, some of you remember, in his presidential campaign, wept on the steps of somewhere in New Hampshire, and his campaign was said to be over immediately. Now, certainly, Ronald Reagan had a tiny tear in his eye when he spoke at the memorial of the Challenger explosion. But Jesus dissolved in grief, something far beyond that, and incredibly open. Or take other religions. I was born in the Far East and lived there and actually studied when I was a lot younger under Guru for a while. If you know anything about Buddha, have you ever seen a weeping Buddha? No. Usually it's a fat and happy Buddha. <laughs> Equally with the Hindus. They keep saying their God, an impersonal God, is not this, not that. He's beyond everything. As the Upanishad says, the fire cannot touch him, the wind cannot touch him, nothing touches him. Not with our Lord. We see in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, the heart of the Messiahship in the Jewish understanding, a servant of God who comes to do God's will and he's captured and tortured and killed. And here he is in our Lord. And he's totally identified with his people. On Good Friday, it's tears. Sorry, on Palm Sunday, it's tears. On Good Friday, it's blood. On Palm Sunday, it's grief. On Good Friday, it's his death. Here, it's deeply emotional. On Friday, just 120 hours later, it'll be physical and the end of his life. Our God cares. 
our God comes, our God grieves, and our God suffers and dies for us. But there's a third thing you see in the passage, and that is the dull insensitivity of everybody else. Jesus sees this incredibly and weeps. No one else sees it at all. Now, as I said, the Sadducees weren't there. They were plotting his death. Self-protective and somewhat cynical. Better that one man dies for the whole people rather than the whole nation getting in trouble from the Romans. They weren't there. The Pharisees were there muttering their disapproval and they'd been plotting against him ever since Nazareth and the early ministry manifesto of Jesus. They certainly weren't about to get it. The crowds didn't get it. Yes, they were right. This was the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they were premature, and they were shallow, and they got the wrong sort of Messiah, not riding in on a war horse to drive the Romans out, but coming in on a donkey to suffer and then to die. They got it wrong, and soon those cries of Hosanna would be, as it was said earlier, crucify him, crucify him. But the stunning one is the disciples. They'd been taught clearly and consistently all the way through, but they didn't get it either. Luke 18, for example, Jesus says, we're going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be arrested, tried, condemned, killed. They weren't theological words. There was nothing philosophical or theological, arcane or complicated or whatever. These are terms that any reporter could use. NBC, CBS, whatever, New York Times, Modesto B, whatever thing they'd use. And what we read is they understood nothing of this. They just didn't get it. And that's the tragedy of this whole passage. They didn't get it. Now, the challenge to us, of course, is to remember that and by God's grace ask that we may not make the same mistake. Are we like David and the men of Essica who understood the signs of their times, who were able to serve God's purpose in his generation, or like even the closest and most intimate to Jesus who in his supreme moment didn't get it? I was saying last night with many more young people in that service, today's 20-somethings are described by futurists as the crunch generation in the sense that now in the global era, with the whole world interconnected in this world of instant immediacy, there are various global trends that are beginning to converge economic, demographic, technological, environmental, and many others. And they will converge in the adulthood of those who are now in their, say, mid-twenties. And in their adulthood, when those trends converge, they will have to be answered wisely and well, or humankind's in trouble. And if we don't answer them, just drift, or answer them badly, there'll be turbulent tailing for humankind. But my concern isn't just the coming generation, but the present generation. Jesus in Luke 11 says a lot about this generation, this generation, this generation. Six times he says it. 
They will be answerable for it. And clearly, he says in another chapter, you can read the signs of the weather. You're great meteorologists, but you don't understand what's happening in your time. What a time we who are older are living in. For 500 years, our Western world, from the Portuguese and the Spanish downwards, our Western world has been dominant in the whole world. But that dominance is now ending in the global era. People talk lively about a second American century. But you can see the American Republic is being called into question by various reasons, external and internal. And you can see the church in the West is not in great shape. The church is exploding in the global south. Millions coming to Christ in sub-Saharan Africa or China. North central China, where I happen to be born, is the epicenter, the fastest growth of the church in 2,000 years. But while the church is exploding in the global south, we're not doing well in the West. Now, you know the situation in Europe. But tragically, because of various things in the last 50 years in America, there's this big a turning against faith, with people defecting from faith altogether or wanting no more faith in public life for various reasons we needn't go into. And you can see how the place of the church in the United States is at a crucial moment. And if ever there was a moment when we need to be freed from all the false lenses and expectations which cloud our thinking, it's now. Why did the disciples of Jesus not get it? Well, if we read the Scriptures, there's probably a negative lesson and a positive lesson. The negative lesson is that they didn't get it because they either had public expectations which were all wrong or personal ambitions which were all wrong. Take the zealots. The zealots wanted that conqueror like Judas Maccabeus, the hammer, who would ride in and ride the Romans out. And that wasn't the sort of Messiah Jesus was. And they didn't get it. In their view, he let them down. But then, of course, there were personal ambitions. Even some of the closest to Jesus, James and John, their mom, as we know, Lord, the best seats in the kingdom for my two sons. No, no, they got it quite wrong. It wasn't that sort of a kingdom. This is one in which the first are going to be last, and the last will be first. It's an upside-down kingdom. And whether it was the public expectations or personal ambitions, the disciples simply didn't get it. Now, are we better than them? I'm certainly not. And we have to say, Lord, clear my thinking of public expectations, all confused with my English politics and my English nationalism, your American politics and your American nationalism, so you're not seeing what God is doing, which may be different from current whatever. But equally, we all have our personal aspirations and ambitions, and they cloud what it is the Lord is doing in our life. Let's ask God, on this Palm Sunday, when tragically, that generation missed it. And for them, it rolled down 
remorselessly to AD 70 and the destruction of the temple and the nation. Please, God, that it may not be the same for us, but that we may have our eyes cleared so that we may see and like King David, serve God's purpose in our own generation. Let me ask Pastor Rick to come up and finish. God be with you all. God, you appreciate it. This is what I'd like to do. If you're physically able, would you just slip down to your knees for a moment? We just, just get onto your knees. If you're physically able, or, or you can stay in your chair, it doesn't matter. Let, let's not run out of here right now. I just want us to maybe be quiet with the Lord for a moment. And for those of you that name the name of Christ, um, I don't know what the Lord's going to say to you or what you need to say to the Lord. Maybe you have some repenting to do. Maybe like some of the disciples, you have your own view of things and you've just missed it. And you're, you've missed what's important to the Lord. you're here and you know the Lord and sin has gotten into your life and so you can't even see the moment. Maybe this would be a time to repent of sin that you might better see this moment. Maybe you're struggling with some physical ailment. Maybe you, you got cancer and going through a divorce, there's, there's something going down and the pain and the sorrow is so great you, you, you can't see the Lord in it. You're missing, you're missing him. He's there. Maybe you're here and you've missed Jesus altogether. And while you were sitting here and listening to the music or whatever, God opened your eyes to the truth of who Jesus was. And this might be the moment where you pray and say, Jesus, come into my life. I receive you as my Lord, as my Savior. I've missed you all of these years, but today I don't want to miss you. Come into my life right now. Cleanse me of my sin. While you're just quiet before the Lord, I, I've been praying for Big Valley family. I don't want to miss what God wants to do with us as a family. I don't want to be so caught up in all the stuff that I miss 
what God wants us to do. be easy for us to be like the disciples where we have our own agenda and we think this or we think that or we and we miss what God wants to do. Pray for your church that we do the Lord's business the Lord's way. Father, I have read that little portion of scripture. I can't even count how many times. Never have I thought about it the way Oz kind of laid it out. Boy, everybody was just missing it. Lord, I miss, I just miss so much. Just, man, help me, Lord. Start with me. I want to do your will, but I want to do it your way, God, not my way, not the world's way, your way. I pray for my friends here, Lord, that they wouldn't miss what you're doing in their lives. But I especially pray for those that might have given their life to you today. They have missed you all of these years, and today you open their eyes. Thanks, God, for your goodness to us. And I pray these things in the name, the sweet name, the unbelievable name of Jesus. Now, I just want you to keep your eyes closed for a second. If you're here, and you'd like to have the spiritual leaders pray for you. If you're a regular, you know we have the altar room over in the venue. We have the altar room. And our elders, our pastors are there to pray, to listen, to give counsel. Take advantage of it. Maybe you're here and you prayed to receive Jesus Christ. Why don't you go into the altar room and just grab one of those guys, gals, and say, hey, I prayed today. Let us know. Let us give you a Bible and Celebrate with you. The singing's done, the giving's done, the praying's done, the preaching's done, but God ain't done in some of your lives right now. He's not done. And the altar room is a place where you can go and flush out maybe what the Lord's been speaking to you about here this morning. Take advantage of it. And all of God's people said, Amen.